Chapter Fifteen of Judge Burnham's Daughters. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Judge Burnham's Daughters by Pansy. Chapter Fifteen. All come. Do you know a young girl by the name of Hollister, Estelle Hollister? Never heard of her. The reply was made in that tone of easy indifference which says, "She is nothing to me, and I have no interest whatever in her story." She is in charge of the lace counter at Myers and McAlpine's. Oh, a pretty girl with yellow brown hair? Yes, I noticed her. I remember somebody called her Estelle. She admires me, I fancy, with a little half-conscious laugh at this tribute to her beauty. She waits on me as though I were a queen. Did you ever hear Mr. Satterley mention her? Jerome? Certainly not. He has no special interest in pretty girls in the abstract, I believe. Again that indifferent tone and half-conscious laugh. He knows her, said Mrs. Burnham, and the tone was so significant as to cause an angry flush on Seraph's face and a haughty inflection in her voice as she said, What do you mean? It may not have been a wise way of commencing. Mrs. Burnham, as she thought it over afterward, felt sure that it was not, but at all events the subject was fairly opened. There could be no waiting now for a more favorable time. She went through the story steadily, with admirable brevity, and yet with telling distinctness. She had studied the points which could not be challenged, and presented them clearly, yet with as few words as possible. If she had been a very tender, real mother, she might have made the statement more tenderly, with pitiful, loving words slipped in between the wounds she felt obliged to make, but she could hardly have done it more skillfully with a view to letting her victim know the truth, with as little torturous circumlocution as possible. She was conscious of a great pity for the girl to whom she was speaking. If she really loved the man, it would be a terrible blow. In any case, it would be galling to her pride." She did not know whether to be glad or sorry that they were interrupted by the sudden entrance of Minta before there was opportunity for a word in reply. Then Ruth went away to her own room to think it over and wonder what sort of an explosion she had set in train. She found that her knowledge of Seraph was not sufficient for her to determine with any feeling of certainty what her course would be. That she was capable of being very angry was unquestionable, but on whom her anger would be visited was a matter of doubt and more or less anxiety. It was, therefore, in the expectation of some sort of moral upheaval that Mrs. Burnham passed the remainder of the day, and she might be said to be prepared for almost anything when Seraph's voice held her in the library that evening just before dinner. Mama, we were interrupted in the midst of your exciting tale this morning. I was sorry, for I wanted to ask you whether you intended to take Jerome into your confidence also. I do not understand you, was Ruth's cold reply. The extreme flippancy of the young lady's words and manner led her to expect nothing but rudeness from this interview. Why, I thought my language was plain. I mean, do you intend to tell him about the young woman with whom you are on confidential terms, or have you engaged to enlighten only me? Do you not intend to tell him? I? Why should I? My lady did not take refuge with me. It was you she honored with her confidence. Seraph, there is really no reason why you should speak of the subject in this manner. 
I told you a sorrowful story this morning, because I thought it must told, and I did it with as little pain to you as I knew how, and only because, judging you as one woman of honor judges another, I felt it was your right to know it. And what do you expect me to do? I do not presume to dictate or even advise. I promised the poor girl that I would warn you, and, as well as I knew how, I have done so. There my responsibility ceases. You will do, it is to be hoped, what you think you ought. If I thought I would be understood, I would express to you what I certainly feel, my deep pain that you should have been so deceived, but as it is... Seraph interrupted her hurriedly. But as it is, there is no need for anything of that sort. I am sure I am grateful for your sympathy, but I think it misplaced. You and I look at a great many things from different standpoints. This is one of them. I do not think Jerome is the worst man in the world, merely because he has had a little flirtation with a shop girl. I do not suppose it is by any means so important a matter as she made you believe. Girls of that stamp always think a gentleman wants to marry them if he lifts his hat to them in passing. In any case, it is all over now, and I do not see why I should make him and myself uncomfortable by mentioning it. You say the girl doesn't want money, but a handsome present will go far toward making life brighter to her, I have no doubt, and one of these days I will see that she receives it. I tell you this that you may see I can be sympathetic as well as yourself. What I want to say to you is that I would prefer your not mentioning the matter even to Papa. I don't see any occasion. If the silly girl had come to me with her complaints, it would have been much more sensible in her, I think. What was a woman of Mrs. Burnham's character to reply to a woman of such a character as this? She stood before her dismayed. She really had not supposed that society could build in a few short years so fair and false a structure. I have nothing further to say, she replied at last. I did not promise to tell the shameful story to anyone but you. Whether I ought to do anything more, I have not yet decided. It is not so pleasant a theme that I shall like to dwell upon it. I will only remind you that it may not be wise to keep your father in ignorance of it, in view of your approaching marriage. The poor girl may have friends who will not be so considerate as herself, and your father's services as a lawyer may be needed, in which case it might be well to have him forewarned. A swift look of mingled pain and anger was the only reply that Seraph had opportunity to make to this, for her mother passed her and went immediately to the dining-room. Dinner was served at once, and Jerome Satterley was one of the family party, Seraph chatting with him as gaily as usual, while the woman who had been acquainted with the fashionable world for years found herself too shaken and distressed and angry to talk with anyone. The only comment on this was made by Mr. Satterley as the door closed between them while Seraph and he made their way to the music room. What is the matter with Mrs. Judge? Have I displeased her more than usual in any way? It seems to me that the word glum would about fit her disposition to-night. And Seraph's gay, sweet laugh rang out as she said, There's no accounting for Mamma's moods, as you will learn when you come to know her better. Mrs. Burnham did not know what Seraph did, but for herself she knew she avoided even the street on which Myers and McAlpine's store was located, 
It made her heart throb with indignant pain even to think of the sorrows and wrongs of the fatherless young girl who toiled there. And the days went by, and still Judge Burnham did not return. Ruth did not even know whether or not he received her words of warning. He was constantly moving from point to point, and his letters had great difficulty in finding him. He wrote frequently, always with the same story, unexpected delay and the hope that his exile was now nearly over. Matters were in this state on a certain Sabbath afternoon in March, when Ruth left her home to go to the Gospel Temperance Meeting in a state of great perturbation. The reason for this was twofold. In the first place, much to her own astonishment, she had been persuaded into allowing herself to be named as leader of the meeting. You who were well acquainted with Ruth Erskine will remember that this would have been a startling innovation to her, even in her girlhood, and the matron had not developed in those directions. It had been a very great trial to her to consent to taking her turn with the others, rather the few among the others who were willing to share this responsibility. Still, she was not lacking in moral courage, you will remember, and her conscience, being closely questioned, could give her no sufficient reason why she should refuse to share in a work whose object she approved. Once pledged, she made what preparation she could for the formidable work. The second source of anxiety she tried hard to hold in the background until the hour of her trial should be over. It grew out of a briefly worded, bewildering sort of note from Marion, brought her by a special messenger but an hour before. Dear Ruth, Forgive my importunity, but the time has come when you must really interfere in regard to that intimacy, even to the extent of issuing commands if need be, until her father returns. I will not trust myself to be more explicit on paper, but Mr. Dennis wishes me to assure you from him that he believes it will be a matter of lifelong regret with you if you do not protect her now. Do not delay another day. In great haste, Marion protect her, as if she did not know that Minta would tolerate no attempt at protection from her. What was she to do? If Judge Burnham were only at home. If Mr. Satterley were, but of what use to mention him? Ruth had only contempt for him. But it was the hour for the meeting, and she must put this thing away for a little time longer. When the strain of the next two hours was over, she would have time to think. As she hurried along the street, a little late and much annoyed thereat, her eye fell upon something that caused her added annoyance. The committee of arrangements were but mortals, and therefore mistakes of judgment as well as of taste ought to have been pardonable. But Ruth was in no mood to grant pardon as there flamed at her from the lamp-post, in what seemed to her painfully conspicuous letters, the announcement. Gospel Temperance Meeting at Burnham Hall Time, three o'clock sharp. All come. Mrs. Judge Burnham will preside. To Ruth's excited fancy, it seemed as though her name was shouted at her by those great staring letters. From every lamp-post it flamed out. This was entirely an innovation. No leader's name had been announced before. Why should those hateful capitals be forced upon her? On the whole, she reached the hall in a very excited frame of mind, and it took all the influence of the opening hymns and prayer to reduce her to something like composure. The hall was unusually full. Ruth thought that there were more men present than she had ever seen there before. 
Her voice sounded strangely to herself as she read the Bible verses which she had selected as the foundation of her talk, but the listeners, to judge by the entirely quiet, respectful attention they gave her, were satisfied. It was a novel situation. At first the leader seemed able to think only of the loud beating of her own heart, and, while she was reading the last verse but one of her selections, she realized that she could not recall a single word of the sentences that she had prepared for her introduction. But the very last verse took hold upon her thoughts, stilled her wild excitement, helped her to feel that she was permitted to be God's messenger to these men and women, many of whom showed plainly by their faces that they knew him not. Thus saith the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house, and speak unto all the cities of Judah, that come to worship in the Lord's house, all the words that I command thee to speak unto them. Diminish not a word, if so be they will hearken, and turn every man from his evil way, and thou shalt say to them, Thus saith the Lord. The wonder and solemnity of the fact that God had given her a message to deliver here held her by its power. The one thing which she now desired was to speak just the words which he commanded. Her language was very simple. She not only could not recall the carefully prepared phrases which she had meant to use, but she ceased to try. Out of the fullness of her conviction that they were men and women who needed God, and that he was waiting to receive them, she spoke. The room was very still. The women who were with her on the platform listened with a sort of hushed awe. They forgot to be nervous, to wonder whether that young man in the corner who was chewing tobacco meant mischief, to whisper together as to what had better be sung when the speaker was through, or to do any of the little restless things that in their nervous anxiety they were generally led into doing. Suddenly Ruth, in the middle of a sentence, her whole heart, she thought, centered in a desire to lead someone to feel his need of a savior, came to a dead pause. Every vestige of color fled from her face, leaving her white and motionless like a marble statue. Mrs. Stuart Bacon half rose in alarm. Was she going to faint? Oh, what would they do? Down near the door, or at least not more than three seats from the door, at the extreme end of the long hall, seated between certain rough-looking men who had crowded in late, was Judge Burnham. Mrs. Stuart Bacon had seen him when he came in. She had nudged Mrs. Parkman's elbow while Ruth was reading those Bible verses, and had whispered that she did not know Judge Burnham had returned, and she must say it was a very beautiful tribute to his wife's influence for him to lay aside his prejudices sufficiently to come and hear her but Ruth had not seen him until that supreme moment when the sight of him took from her the words she was about to speak and brought her with a rude shock back to earth again. It all passed in a moment, and Mrs. Bacon sank back in her chair with a relieved sigh. Ruth had forgotten the sentence she was uttering. Never mind, that strange power as of God took hold of her again, said to her, speaking low so no ear but hers could hear, You are God's messenger. You are to speak to these men all that God has commanded you. You are to diminish nothing. You may never have another opportunity. What human being ought to influence you now? Say unto them, Thus saith the Lord. It takes much longer to tell it than it did to think it. Before some had even noticed the hesitation, the clear cultured voice went on. Young man, God is speaking to you. 
He wants you, wants you to day ; wants your brains, and your strength, and your influence, for himself. Why do you wait ? You know you need him." There was a movement on the very last seat ; a sort of undertone disturbance ; two young men pushing each other, chuckling, speaking almost aloud in their amusement. Judge Burnham arose, went with a light tread over to the last seat, and sat down close beside the rougher of the two young men. The disturbance ceased. The clear voice went on, gathering firmness. The movement had not disturbed her, neither had the muttering of the two bent on mischief. She had for the time being gotten above it all. The women seated on the platform looked at one another and nodded in satisfaction. They could see each other's thoughts. It was splendid in Judge Burnham to do that. He is not going to have his wife treated rudely. They should not wonder if he could be won into coming every Sabbath. What a stroke of genius it was to have secured Mrs. Burnham as a co-laborer. Besides, who had imagined that she could talk like this? So much we know about people's hearts. Judge Burnham was never in a more rebellious turmoil against his surroundings and environments than at that moment. He would have told them a curious story about his coming to that meeting. End of chapter 15 Recording by Tricia G.